and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We get messages all the time. Not just text messages, marketing, all the messages that are slammed at us day in, day out. And yet there's something about this text that has divided families. There is something about this text that rulers through the centuries have tried to suppress. There's something about this text that brings out the best and the worst in the church. There's something about this text that people revere and revile. What is it about that book that claims to be God's very own words for us that we sometimes ignore? in our day-to-day relationships, living, choices. God, I pray that you would hide me in your shadow. That what we see and what we would hear would be your whisper of truth through my words. Whatever word of encouragement or challenge we need this morning, Lord, regarding the Bible, I pray that you would bring it And bring it strongly. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I shared with you in the beginning, we, in our society, are inundated with texts. I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you text message. Just raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand... If you text message on a frequent basis, would you say you text on a frequent basis? Okay. I'm going to be talking to you throughout this series about Scripture. This morning, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson on how we got the Bible. Next week, talking about the reliability of the Bible, can it be trusted The following week, how to study the Bible. Just going to give you just a really simple process for reading Scripture on a daily basis that I hope will be encouraging for you. And then the last week, a bit of a tie-in to Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about what does it mean to live your life with Bible-sized gratitude. The Bible and its... Accuracy, authenticity, and even its authority is under more suspicion and sometimes even attack today more than at any time in history. Yet, instead of ignoring those attacks or retaliating in anger, Scripture itself says in 1 Peter 3.15, Once you have set your heart upon Christ as your Lord, then be prepared to give an answer 
for the hope that you have. In other words, once you have said, I choose Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then we don't just respond to people who don't believe as we believe with negativity. We are called to give a reason. Why do you believe as you believe? Why do you trust Scripture as God's Word? 1 Peter 3.15 goes on to say, But do this with gentleness and respect. How can we do that? Can you go into your schools? Can you go into your relationships? Can you go into your workplaces, your neighborhoods, your relationships and give some solid understanding of why you trust the accuracy, authenticity, and the authority of Scripture? Or do we often say, well, I just believe it because I came to believe it, and it's God's Word, and just get out of my face? In order for New Song, us, to create environments where people can explore and engage and express a relationship with Christ, we have to have some understanding of why we believe that God's Word, that Scripture is somewhat (laughs) our rule of life. In order for us to express our faith to an increasingly skeptical and secular culture, we must have some comfort, some confidence in the accuracy, authenticity, and authority of Scripture. Let me just assure you that there is a vast difference between knowing something about the Bible and knowing the authority and accuracy of Scripture. This is not just for pastors and people that work in the church to understand. We are called to understand and grasp and wrestle with the authority, accuracy, and authenticity of Scripture. Let's begin. Let's begin simply. There are 66 books in our Bible. Frankly, they are not all books. Some of them are biographies, some of them are letters, some of it's poetry, some of it's allegory, some of it is history. Written over a time period of approximately 1,500 years, 40-plus authors, about three different languages, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Did you get that, or do I need to go over it again? All of that's very simple out there. The Bible deals with, let's just take Jesus for an example. The Bible deals with, in regard to Jesus, it deals with his life and his interactions. It deals with his actions and reactions. It deals with his teachings. It deals with his challenges to the way you are supposed to live your life. And yet Chuck Colson said, quote, What is it about this book, the Bible? that causes people to give their lives for it, that causes dictators to try and suppress it, and that so infuriates the cultural elite today. One and only one reason. Because the Bible claims to be God's word. Most of us in this room would nod our head and say, absolutely it is God's word. And many of us would recoil back and say to the question, 
Why is it God's word? How can it be trusted? Is there any history behind it? Do you know about the depths of the Bible, or do you just know selective verses? This is a text. This purports to be God's text message to us. Those of us that say the church is the hope to redeem the world, those of us who say that Jesus really is God in flesh, those of us who say the church, you all, us all, are supposed to be the body of Christ in school, in your workplaces, in your relationships, at all times representing Jesus, those of us who say that would say this is somehow God's word. We may not understand all that that means. I don't understand all that that means. But I've come to trust Scripture as uniquely written by the hand of God through people in a way that can challenge every decision I make that can infuse hope in situations that seem hopeless, that can grant me strength when I feel like I don't have any more strength, and that can tell me to shut up when I'm about to say something I shouldn't say, and that can tell me to speak when I'm too afraid to speak. I do not stand up here Sunday after Sunday quoting Shakespeare to you. Though I think Shakespeare was a brilliant writer and he should be studied. I know that just turned most of you off. I do not stand up here quoting the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Though I think those are brilliant documents and they should be studied. And probably a little more than we do. But week after week, I stand up here and read scripture to you and we try to elucidate it for our lives because we believe, some of us, that it is God's written text. So one of the things to understand is, what is the history behind this text? How did we get it? How did it come to be? Those are legitimate questions that even we should be asking, much less a secular world should be asking. It is entirely legitimate for somebody to say to me after they find out I'm a pastor, so why do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? It is entirely legitimate for somebody to say to you, you go to church Sunday after Sunday and listen to this Bible thing, why do you listen to the Bible? Why do you read scripture? Well, I I, I don't know, it's just a good book, tells me some things, that's exciting. Horse feathers. If Scripture is God's text to us, then we need to not bow back, cower back, shrink from anyone who challenges the authenticity, accuracy, and authority of Scripture. But we need to know where we're standing. How many of you own one copy of the Bible? Raise your hand. At least one copy of the Bible. How many of you own 
two or more copies of the Bible? Raise your hand. How many of you in this past week spent time studying and reading Scripture at some depth? Don't raise your hand. Sometimes we have this idea that Scripture is something to be revered, but not necessarily followed. Some place to put nice letters from the past or to press flowers and leaves to honor them. When Scripture is supposed to be unfolded and opened and marked in your Bible. I know I just lost some of you there. Writing and marking and underlining and highlighting. I know I'm losing some of you there. And that's all right. Here's the deal. Scripture is supposed to be used. And used up in your life. Perhaps so that at the end of your life, it looks messy. Because you've used it so much. Why is it that we sometimes revere Scripture? What, what, one of the reasons, I think, is because actually what we just took a little poll on. The Bible is so readily available to us. It's just everywhere. And when something is everywhere, what? We sometimes just kind of take it for granted. And yet Psalm 119 says, I will delight in your decrees and I will not forget your word. Let me tell you why that's so cool. I will not forget your word. The word forget in Hebrew, listen, the word translated forget there in Hebrew means I will not lay it aside. I will not take it for granted. I will so revere scripture that I will not take it for granted. I'll not lay it aside. I'll not put it on a shelf. But there's another reason I think we sometimes take Scripture for granted. Listen and let's see if you think it's true. I think we take Scripture for granted because very few of us realize what it took. What it took for people to bring us the Bible we have today for 2,000 years. Do you realize what it took? the lives it took for people to bring the Bible that we have today. Let me give you a brief teaching on that. The first text message we believe we received was from God's own finger. It's called the Ten Commandments. I believe that the Ten Commandments were carved by God's very own hand on two stone tablets. He didn't write it in the dirt so it could be washed away. He didn't write it in ink so that it could fade. The Bible says God took his finger and carved into stone. You must hold me in honor. You must not commit adultery. You must not lie because it was so important. God sent us that text. About 1500 B.C. After that, something called the Pentateuch 
was written and collected. It was written on animal skins. The Pentateuch was the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. What are they? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, George, Paul. That's not until the New Testament. And what you may not know is that at this time, that Pentateuch became known as the Torah. You know the word Torah? Torah is the first five books. Moses, first five books of Moses. What you may not know is that they were hand-copied on animal skin. Hand-copied one letter at a time. As a matter of fact, it is believed that the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books written on animal skins and called what? What do we call that? Scrolls? If it was all scrolled out, it would be approximately 150 feet long, written in hand. Written on sheepskin, cowskin, never written on pigskin, right? Because that was considered a sacred animal. And if you're reading on pigskin and you're trying to study, you start smelling bacon and your mind starts to wander. <laughs> I apologize for that. That was a bad thing to do. About 500 B.C. then, the 39 books as we know them in the Old Testament were completed, preserved, provided in Hebrew. I'm going to go through this lesson because some of it's very powerful. And then by the end of the first century A.D., the New Testament as we know was completed, comprised, put on also scrolls, but made of papyrus. You know what papyrus is? Kind of a plant, it's wetted, squished together, kind of made paper, papyrus, also scrolls. Also, listen, copied hand, hand, note, letter by letter. Then about 367 A.D., a bishop, Athanasius, wrote a letter to all the churches at that time, and that's the first time it is mentioned, listen, that's the first time it is mentioned, the 27 books, as we have them in the New Testament. How did they come to the books of the New Testament? You understand I'm giving you this truncated history lesson. I paid tens of thousands of dollars and was three years in graduate school getting this stuff. You're getting about 20 minutes of it. So it's kind of cheap and quick. But very important if we're going to come to revere and follow this God's word. In 367, this bishop of Athanasius said, here, Bishop Athanasius said, here are these 27 books. He wrote a letter to the churches at Easter time. How did they come to these 27 books? There were three questions that they asked. They simply focused on, measured up. You've heard the books, you've heard this word called canon. You've heard the book, the words the canon, the canon of scripture. That's what they did. They took all the papyrus, they put it in a canon, they shot it out. The ones that survived are the ones that are canon. <laughs> Canonized, you've heard that before. The word canon, you've heard the word can canon before, the canon scripture. The word canon means uh, um, uh, the rule, the measuring. So it's like what measured up to become scripture? 
one of the first questions they looked at was, is there internal consistency with this book and what we know of other scripture? Listen, that's very important. For example, in the New Testament, they said, does this book that other people say should be in Scripture, does it, does it say the, some of the same messages about Jesus? Or is, it, or is it like way off? I'll give you an example. There's a book written by a man purportedly named Thomas, not the same Thomas we don't believe in Scripture. It's called The Infancy Gospel of Jesus. And people at that time were saying this book should be included in the rule of Scripture, in the canon of Scripture, this gospel of the infant Jesus. It'd be kind of interesting to know about Jesus' younger days, wouldn't it? Well, here's one of the stories in the infancy gospel. Jesus is a little boy. He's walking down a street. Another little boy walks along and bumps into Jesus. Jesus gets so mad at this little boy... The little boy dies on the spot. Now, does that not seem to contradict everything else in all of other scripture that we have learned about Jesus? This is the one of the ways that historians do their work. Not just in religion, but in secular. They take, they take stories and they try to put them together. Does this make sense? Is this contradictory? So one of the ways we came to form Scripture, one of the ways come to form the Bible is not a bunch of people sitting in a dark room smoking stogies. But it is people over a 300-year period looking at Scripture that was coming alive and people saying in this community, well, we should include this, and then looking at, does it make sense? Is there internal consistency? The second question. Was it, we believe, written by an apostle somebody who actually walked with Jesus, or by somebody directly endorsed by an apostle? The first question, is there internal consistency? The second question is, do we have some sense of who wrote it, and was it written about that time, or was it written by somebody connected to that time? The third question I think is most interesting. The third question, the third area that they dealt with was, was this book, the one looking at all these scriptures, the one they're trying to bring in, the ones they're trying to decide, was this book already accepted as scripture by the churches at the time? Groups didn't get together just behind closed doors one day through the history of the creation of the New Testament, for example, they were constantly looking at new books and new texts, and they were trying to figure out, is this internally consistent with what we know? One, do we know that this came from the hand of somebody who walked right with Jesus or walked very close to somebody with Jesus? And the third question, is it already being used by all the churches already being accepted? This is not some group, again, that got behind closed door, handbooks the Bible, to please their own political agenda. The council chose to ratify, the councils through the years chose to ratify and verify that which is being used by the church for almost 300 years. However, now I think it gets really interesting. All of that is preamble. Now what happens is that in the year 500 A.D., 
I said, listen, 367 AD is when they kind of set, kind of when we knew what these 27 books would be, right? How many languages were they using at that time in Scripture? There's a couple. In 500 AD, there were over 500 translations of Scripture, 500 languages. So in less than 150 years, it went from two to three languages to 500. Now it gets really interesting. Because 100 years after that, in 600 A.D., there was a law passed by the dominant church at the time, the Roman church. About 600 A.D., there was a law passed, and it said, the Bible can only be in one language. What Latin language would that have been? (laughs) Smart group. Why would there be a law that you could only put the Bible in one language? Because it would restrict who could read it. The priests at the time were well versed in Latin. The people were not versed in Latin well or at all. And so this was a way of forcing biblical ignorance. This was me coming up here and sharing with you scripture in Italian and telling you this is what it means. And you saying, well, he's the pastor. He must know what he's talking about, which is what you do every Sunday. Thank you for playing. So in 600 A.D. approximately... The Bible was only allowed in one language. Indeed, all other Bibles were to be burnt, and if you were caught with another Bible, you could be executed. I refer you back to what I said toward the beginning of this message, that you do not understand what people had to go through to bring us the Bible we have today. People gave their lives so we could put it on a shelf and not read it. Indeed, at that time, some new theological terms were being created. For example, purgatory. How many of you have heard of purgatory? If you're a Cleveland Browns fan, you live in purgatory, but that's a different story. Thank you very much. I don't want to hear any from you. I'll pay for that one later. Purgatory, a place of holding you until you kind of worked your way into heaven or somebody prayed you into heaven or somebody paid enough money so you could get out of purgatory into heaven. This was biblically forced ignorance. Indeed, it led to a thousand-year period, which we sometimes call the Dark Ages. About 500 to 1500. Now it gets more interesting. In the late 1300s, a guy named John Wycliffe. You ever heard of John Wycliffe before? John Wycliffe wrote the first Bible in English. At the time, to write scripture, there was no printing press yet. At the time, it would have taken a person to write the Bible by hand about 10 months to make one copy. 
Wycliffe was as faithful as he could be in translating the Bible, but he was dubbed a heretic by the church. Indeed, he was dubbed a heretic by the church because he translated Scripture into the English language. The ruler at that time of the head of the church was so angry with him for doing this that 44 years after he was buried, they dug up his body, they ground up his bones, and they spread it into a river for translating the Bible that we have into English. A man named John Hughes. John Hughes was also a Bible translator. He was also named as a heretic. He was burned at the stake alive because of his Bible translations. Do you know how they started the fire around him to kill him? They took some of Wycliffe's Bibles, spread it around, and caught it on fire. It is said that the last words before he was killed by the fire is this quote. In the next 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform in the church cannot be suppressed. In less than 100 years, 1517, a man named Martin Lutherism, Martin Luther, took what he called his 95 theses and nailed them on a church door. Now, I got to tell you, I, for about two semesters, studied these 95 theses. We looked at them in different languages. We, I still didn't understand all of them, but I passed the class, so there you go. <laughs> Essentially, these 95 theses that he nailed up against the church door were simply Martin Luther's way of saying there are 95 theological things you are getting wrong. Claiming false teaching and trying to reform a church. And so he created this protest. Stay with me. And this protest became what? A protesting church. The Protestant church. Began to translate scripture into German. A vulgar language thought at the time. In 1526, you'll notice I'm not moving through many years now. In 1526, after the printing press came into being, a man named Tyndale. You ever heard the last name Tyndale? A man named Tyndale began to copy, disseminate, translate Scripture. He was also named a heretic. Are you getting a theme here? Wycliffe, Hughes, Martin Luther, also named a heretic. Tyndale, named a heretic. He was caught. He was imprisoned for 500 days for translating the Bible and disseminating what we say is God's Word. 
that which we put on a shelf or sometimes read one or two passages in a day. He was slammed in the Scripture for 500 days. In 1536, he was burned at the stake. It is said that his last words were these, quote, O God, open the eyes of the King of England. He was simply mass-producing Scripture, and yet some people were still being executed for making copies of God's Word. 1536, he's burned at the stake with these as his last words. Pay attention, it's going to get real interesting now. O God, open the eyes of the King of England... 1536, in 1539, three years later, the king of England allowed scripture to be printed and he even paid for it. I didn't tell you this ahead of time and I'll tell you now. This message is going to end abruptly and I'm almost there. Once the Bible got, the point of all of this is, once the Bible got into the language of the people, once the people began to read Scripture and embed it in their lives and live it out as God's Word, we have a period of growth and reformation in the church that has never never been equal. The protesting and the reformation of the Protestant church and indeed of the Catholic church took on great speed, not because of the leadership, but because people began to read, study, use, and live Scripture. Lives began to change all over the known world. Lives began to be reformed, hence we call it the Reformation. Reformation. We do not coin the phrase Reformation because Luther or Calvin or anyone else said, let's call this the Reformation. It's called the Reformation because lies began to be reformed only because Scripture was made available to them, only because people insisted on putting it in their only language, only because they knew they would die if they did it, only because they said it was worth it. the book we have in our homes that we sometimes look at. The growth and faith of the church is tied directly to the seriousness or not with which we view Scripture. The history of the Bible says that people wrote the book in their blood. The growth and faith faith and understanding of Christ will only occur when the Bible, the text, is taken seriously. Not laid aside or taken for granted. They gave their lives.
that gave their very lives. At this point, some might say, that stupid Roman Catholic Church. I say, thank God. If they had not translated it in the first place, we couldn't have translated it into other languages in the second place. Let us not be too high and mighty because at least they took it seriously enough to say, if you mess with it, we're going to kill you. Do we take it seriously enough to engage it with our lives? They gave their lives, fighting with everything they had in them. To write it on a scroll made of animal skin, to write it on a scroll made of papyrus, to write it out word by word, sentence by sentence, letter by letter, to make sure that there was accuracy behind it. And century after century after century, the way that you see reformation and growth in the church, a local church like ours, or a global church like the Christian church, is when we look at Scripture and we wrestle with its authenticity and its accuracy and its authority in our individual lives. And come to the conclusion, if God really sent me a text... Shouldn't I read it? And shouldn't I respond? If God really sent me a text, shouldn't I read it? And shouldn't I respond? Listen again with that history in mind to the Second Timothy passage. All of Scripture is breathed by God. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training us So that those of us who want to live in a right relationship with God can do the good works that God's given us to do. God sent you a text. And next week, we're going to look at the text and say, why do we think we can rely on it? Why do we believe it is reliable? God, thank you for this scripture that we call your word. Thank you that it is so readily available to us, but God, through that, help us not to take it for granted. Thank you for all of those through the years and decades and centuries that have translated, fought for it, hid it from governments that tried to suppress it, broke it out into freedom. Those who have hidden it in their hearts 
because to keep it out in open brings persecution. Thank you for our society in which it is so open. But help us, God, to move past revering your word and help us to move toward responding to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.